Chapter 5 of The Romance of Missionary Heroism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Missionary Heroism by John Chisholm Lambert. Chapter 5 A Heroine of Tibet. When an armed British expedition struggled over the Karola Pass, which exceeds Mont Blanc in height, and entered Lhasa on the 3rd of August, 1904, there was a brief lifting of the veil of mystery which has hung for centuries around the city of the Grand Lama. But the wreathing snows, which began to fall so heavily around the little army before it reached the frontiers of India on the return journey, were almost symbolical of the fact that Lhasa was already wrapping herself once more in her immemorial veil of cold aloofness from European eyes. Prior to the arrival of this military expedition, only one Englishman, Thomas Manning, had succeeded in reaching Lhasa, and it will soon be a century since his bold march was made. Sixty years ago two French missionary priests, the Abbes Hook and Gabay, undertook their celebrated journey from China to Lhasa, which they afterwards described in a very interesting book. But though they reached their goal, they gained little by it, for they were soon deported back to China again. No Protestant missionary has ever set foot in Lhasa, and, what is more, no Protestant missionary, with one exception, has ever made a determined attempt to reach it. And to the honor of her sex be it said, the one who made the attempt and all but succeeded was a lady, and a lady with no other following than a couple of faithful Asiatic servants. The character and career of Miss Annie R. Taylor remind one at some points of the late General Gordon. There is the same shrinking from public notice, the same readiness to be buried from the sight of Europe in some distant and difficult task, the same courage which fears nothing, the same simple, unquestioning trust in the care and guidance of a heavenly father. Miss Taylor went out to China in 1884 in the service of the China Inland Mission, and worked for some time at Tao Chau, a city which lies in the extreme northwest and quite near the Tibetan frontier. In 1887 she paid a visit to the great Lama Monastery of Kumbum, the very monastery in which Messieurs Hook and Gabay had stayed long before while they were learning the Tibetan language. The memory of these two adventurous priests may have stirred a spirit of imitation in a kindred heart. But what chiefly pressed upon Miss Taylor's thoughts as she stood in the Kumbum Lamasery and looked out to the west was the vision of that great unevangelized land which stretched beyond the horizon for a thousand miles. That this land was not only shut, but almost hermetically sealed, against foreigners, she knew perfectly well. But her dictionary, like Napoleon's, did not contain the word impossible. She recalled Christ's marching orders to his church, Go ye into all the world, and said to herself, Our Lord has given us no commands which are impossible to be carried out. And if no one else was ready in Christ's name to try to scale the roof of the world, and press on into the sacred city of Lhasa itself, she determined that she, at all events, would make the attempt. Her first idea was to make India her point of departure, for Lhasa lies much nearer to India than to China, though the comparative shortness of this route is balanced by the fact that it leads right over the Himalayas. She went accordingly to Darjeeling, pressed on into Sikkim, which had not yet passed under British rule, and settled down near a Tibetan fort called Kambajong, with the view of mastering the language thoroughly before proceeding any farther. 
from the first the tibetan suspicion of all strangers showed itself the people would often ask her in an unpleasantly suggestive manner what they should do with her body if she died her answer was that she had no intention of dying just then the intentions of the natives however did not coincide with her own and they next resorted to a custom they have of praying people dead their faith in the power of prayer did not hinder them from giving heaven some assistance in getting their prayers answered one day the chief's wife invited miss taylor to dinner and set before her an appetizing dish of rice and eggs she had not long partaken of it when she fell seriously ill with all the symptoms of aconite poisoning on her recovery she wisely left this district and settled down to live the life of the natives themselves in a little hut near the tibetan monastery of podang gumpa after a year spent in this way for ten months of which she never saw the face of a white person she realized the impracticability of making her way to lhasa by the himalayan route which is far more jealously guarded than the one from the frontiers of china she decided therefore to return to china and to make it her starting point her time in sikkim had not been wasted in the first place she had not only learned tibetan thoroughly but had acquired it in its purest form as spoken at lhasa in the next place she had gained a friend and attendant who was to prove of invaluable service to her in her future wanderings a young tibetan named Ponzo, a native of lhasa had met with a serious accident while traveling on the frontiers of india someone directed him to the white lady for treatment he had never seen a foreigner before but the kindness and care with which miss taylor nursed him in his sufferings completely won his heart he became a believer in the religion which prompted such goodness to a stranger devoted himself thenceforth to the service of his benefactress and justified the trust she placed in him by his unfailing courage and fidelity taking Ponzo with her miss taylor now sailed to shanghai made her way up the yangtze for two thousand miles and then on to Taochao in the tibetan frontier by way of preparing herself still further for her projected march into the interior she visited a number of lamaseries in that region made friends with the lamas and learned everything she could about the tibetan religion and ways of life and thought about a year after her return to Taochao, the opportunity came for which she had been waiting among her acquaintances in the town was a chinese mohammedan named noga whose wife ermini was a lhasa woman noga was a trader who had several times been to lhasa and on his last journey had brought away this lhasa wife according to a tibetan custom he had married her only for a fixed term and as the three years named in the bond were now fully up ermini was anxious to return to her native city and noga quite willing to convey her back the only question was one of ways and means and when they found that miss taylor wished to go to lhasa noga made a proposal he would himself guide her all the way to the capital provided she supplied the horses and met all necessary expenses miss taylor at once agreed to his terms which if the chinaman had been honest would have been advantageous to both parties but noga was a deep-dyed scoundrel as miss taylor soon discovered to her cost it was on the second of september eighteen ninety two that this brave englishwoman set out on her heroic enterprise she was accompanied by five asiatics noga and his wife her faithful attendant Ponzo, a young chinese whom she had engaged as an additional servant and a tibetan frontiersman nobgi by name who asked permission to join the little company as he also was bound for lhasa 
There were sixteen horses in the cavalcade, two mounts being provided for most of the travelers, while there were several pack-horses loaded with tents, bedding, cloth for barter, presents for chiefs, and provisions for two months. They had not proceeded far into the wild country which begins immediately after the Chinese frontier is left behind, when their troubles commenced. They came suddenly upon a group of eight brigands who were haunting the mountain track for the express purpose of relieving travelers of their valuables. Fortunately, the brigands had not noticed their approach, and were seated round a fire enjoying their favorite Tibetan meal of tea, a meal in more senses than one, for Tibetans thicken the beverage with a handful of barley meal, so that it becomes a kind of gruel. Moreover, the robbers were armed with old-fashioned matchlocks, the tinder-boxes of which it took some time to light, and as Miss Taylor's party, though weaker in numbers, were better armed, they succeeded in beating off their assailants. Three days after, they overtook a caravan of friendly Mongols traveling in the same direction as themselves, and in view of their recent experience, thought it wise to amalgamate their forces. Their satisfaction at being thus reinforced was not long-lived, Almost immediately after, a band of brigands two hundred strong swept down upon the caravan, entirely surrounded it, and began firing from all sides. Two men were killed and seven wounded. Resistance was hopeless, and the whole company had to surrender. The Mongols and Nobgi were robbed of everything, and had to turn back. But as the brigand code of honor forbids war upon women, Miss Taylor and her four attendants were allowed to pass on their way, not, however, without being deprived of two of the horses and a good part of the luggage. The next stage of the journey lay through the land of a strange people known as the Goloks. This is a fierce and warlike race, bearing some resemblance both in habits and dress to the Scottish Highlanders of other days. They draw up their sheepskin garments by a girdle so as to form a kind of kilt, and leave their knees bare, while covering the lower part of their limbs with cloth leggings fastened with garters of bright-colored wool. Like the Highlanders of long ago, they have a great contempt for law and authority, and acknowledge neither Tibetan nor Chinese rule. The chief delight of their lives is to engage in forays upon people of more peaceful tastes and habits than themselves. Issuing in large bodies from their mountain glens under some fighting chieftain, they sweep down upon the people of some neighboring tribe, and carry off as booty their cattle, horses, sheep, tents, and other belongings. Among the Goloks, Miss Taylor would have fared even worse than she had already done at the hands of the brigands, but for the fact that the part of the tribe with which she first came in contact was ruled by a chieftainess, a woman named Wachu Bumo. On discovering that this white traveler was also a woman, Wachu Bumo took quite a fancy to her, and not only saw to it that she was treated courteously, so long as she remained in the Golok valleys, but insisted on furnishing her with an escort of two Golok horsemen to see her safely on her way for some distance after she had left the country of these marauders. It is characteristic of Miss Taylor that in her little book, Pioneering in Tibet, she says hardly anything about her own hardships and sufferings in that long march through one of the wildest regions of the world. For a great part of the way, it must be remembered, the route ran among mountains covered with perpetual snow. Rivers had to be crossed which knew neither bridge nor ferry nor ford. Winter, too, was coming on, and they had often to advance in the teeth of blinding storms of sleet and snow. In England, Miss Taylor had been considered delicate, but a brave spirit and a strong will carried her through experiences which might well have broken down the strongest physique. 
Shortly after they had left the land of the Golaks, the cold and exposure proved too much for her Chinese servant, a tall, powerful young man. Miss Taylor does not dwell upon the circumstances of his death, but a glimpse like the following is suggestive by its very reticence. We buried him at noon. A bright sun lightened up the snow-clad hills when the men dug up a few hard sods in some swampy ground close by, laid down the body in its shroud of white cotton cloth, and covered it as best they could with the frost-bound earth. At night the wolves were howling round the grave. This was in the Pago country. In a little mountain town called Gala, Miss Taylor made the interesting acquaintance of a couple, Patain and Perma, whose marriage had a flavor of romance unusual in Tibet. From infancy Patain had been dedicated to the priesthood, and had been brought up accordingly in a lamasery. But when about twenty years of age he suddenly fell in love with Perma, the course of his true love could not possibly run smooth, for celibacy is as binding on a Buddhist lama as on a Romish priest. But one fine day, as Miss Taylor puts it, this Tibetan Abelard disappeared and in company with Perma made his way to Lhasa. Here he discarded his priest's robe and became a tailor. After a child had been born to them they decided to return to Gala, and by means of a judicious present succeeded in soothing the outraged feelings of the local chief. In the house of this couple Miss Taylor stayed for some time to rest from her fatigues, and when she was setting out again persuaded Patain, who was an experienced traveller and knew Lhasa well, to come with her in place of the Chinese attendant she had recently lost. It was fortunate for her that she secured his services. He proved a capable and devoted follower, and it would have gone ill with her, as she soon found out, but for his presence and help. They were now in the very heart of the mountains, and Noga, the Chinese guide, feeling that Miss Taylor was thoroughly in his power, began to appear in his true character. Both he and his wife had behaved very badly from the first, but it now became evident that his real purpose all along had been to rob and murder his employer before reaching Lhasa. More than once he made deliberate attempts on her life, but on each occasion the vigilance of Ponzo and Patain defeated his villainy, and at last he contented himself with deserting her altogether, carrying off at the same time, along with his wife, a horse, a mule, and the larger of the two tents. The little party of three, Miss Taylor and two Tibetans, was now reduced to such straits for lack of food that the only remaining tent had to be bartered for the necessaries of life, and though it was now the middle of December in that awful climate, they had henceforth to sleep in the open air. When night fell they looked about for holes in the ground, so that they might have a little shelter from the high and piercing winds which in those elevated regions are constantly blowing. A march of several days brought them to Damjawarla Pass, one of the loftiest and most dreaded passes in Tibet. Here the cold is so paralyzing that it is not uncommon for some travelers in a caravan to be completely overpowered by it, so that they drop down helpless by the wayside. There they are simply left to perish, since any halt on their account might mean death to others of the company. At length the waters of the Bochu were crossed, the boundary of the sacred province of U, in which Lhasa stands, and the goal of the journey seemed almost in sight. But alas for their hopes! In the middle of a deep gorge through which the path ran, two fully armed Tibetan soldiers sprang out from behind the rocks, ordered them to halt, and took them prisoners. This was on January 3, 1893. Miss Taylor soon learned to what this arrest was due. 
noga after deserting her had hurried on in front for the purpose of lodging information that he had met two tibetans conducting a european lady towards lhasa guards were accordingly placed at all the approaches and miss taylor had walked into a prepared trap for several days she was kept a prisoner surrounded by about twenty soldiers and having no better shelter by day or night than a narrow coffin-shaped hole in the ground at last she and her two attendants were brought before some chiefs who had been summoned from lhasa and a trial was entered into which lasted for days communication with the capital being kept up all the while by special messengers word came from lhasa that the white lady was to be treated courteously and this injunction was carefully attended to but the issue of the trial was never in doubt when only three days march from the sacred city nearer than any of the later european travellers had succeeded in getting miss taylor had to turn back and retrace every step of the weary way from the frontiers of china the return was even more trying than the advance not only because hope was now turned to disappointment but because winter in all its rigour now lay upon the land the tibetan authorities though firm were not unkind and supplied miss taylor with provisions some money and two horses but the tibetan climate made up for any gentleness on the part of the lhasa chiefs the cold was almost unspeakable and the food they tried to cook over their dung fires had often to be eaten half raw and little more than half warm since at the great elevations of the mountain passes water boiled with very little heat for twenty days at a stretch they had to sleep on the ground in the open air the snow falling around them all the while for tent they had none and there was no sign of any human habitation their greatest difficulty however was to keep their horses from starving in that frozen land in tibet the emergency ration for horses in winter is raw goat's flesh which they eat greedily but miss taylor could not afford to buy goats all that could be spared to the poor steeds was a little tea with cheese and butter stirred into it with the result that the famishing animals ate the woolen clothing of their riders whenever they got a chance miss taylor reached china safely once more seven months and ten days after she had set out for lhasa from the city of tauchau she made no further attempt to penetrate to the sacred city the very year eighteen ninety three which witnessed the discomfiture of her heroic effort was marked by the signing of the sikkim tibet convention which secured a trade mart at yatung on the tibetan side of the indian frontier open to all british subjects for the purposes of trade in this political event miss taylor's discerning eye saw a missionary opportunity from china she returned once more to the himalayas and started her remarkable mission at yatung in the chumbi valley where by and by she secured the assistance of two other ladies miss ferguson and miss foster nominally she is a trader this being the ground of her right to settle down within the borders of the forbidden empire and in point of fact she carries on some trade with the people of the district who much prefer her dealings to those of the chinese merchants and officials but first of all as both chinese and tibetans know she is a missionary partly to the bodies for her mission is provided with a dispensary but above all to the souls of her beloved tibetans the trading is not a hardship she writes if paul could make tents for christ surely we can do this for our master so those who are called to work for tibet must be prepared for the present to sell goods to the tibetans or attend to their ailments as well as preach the gospel to them 
seldom surely in the annals of christian missions has there been a more romantic figure than that of this heroine of tibet who nearly succeeded in reaching lhasa but having failed turned with a sanctified common sense which might almost be described as apostolic to the open door offered by the trading regulations of the sikkim tibet convention of eighteen ninety three chapter five